Today we're going to, uh, as you can see on the screen there, we're going to be looking at the last bunch of verses in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 19 that is, um, and if you do not have your own Bible, you can see the page numbers are listed there for those that we do provide in the, the seats kind of in front of you. Uh, but our goal today will be to finish this chapter. It's a sermon that I've entitled, The Kind of Faith That Causes a Recession. Well, normally we don't like recessions. Recessions are bad in our economy, uh, but in this case, it's very good. And we all want to have this kind of a faith, the type of faith that causes a recession. So let's pray to dedicate our time. Father, we do want to hear from you. We want to meet with you. Lord, we're, we're grateful for the gift of your word. And we know that the the entrance of your word brings light into our lives. And so we pray that you would do that. Lord, you'd give us understanding, uh, not only for what uh, the text is saying, but Lord, for how that text is shining a light on our path in front of us, that we might walk forward in it and its truth. And so bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we were last together, we, we started chapter 19. Actually, this is our third study in chapter 19. And, but when we were last together, we took some time to look at the many different interactions that the Apostle Paul was having in the city of Ephesus, you may recall. Remember, we are in the midst of Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, we'll throw a little map up here to just kind of remind you that that black dot, that represents Ephesus. Um, and as you can see there, that region then was called Asia. Uh, historically, now we refer to that as Asia Minor or the country of Turkey. And so that's where Paul had made his way. He had visited a whole bunch of other churches that he had been to previously. He had been to Ephesus previously. But at that point, he didn't have enough time to really stay um, and do what he wanted to do in that city. Uh, but he said, look, if I can, I will. If the Lord allows, I'll come back. Uh, and he did. He was faithful, uh, true to his word. And he re returned to the city of Ephesus, and we, we spent some time looking at it. A couple things you might recall. We learned in verse 8 of chapter 19 that Paul did what he always did when he went into a new community. If they had a, uh, a group of Jews that lived in that community, Paul went and ministered to those Jews. And so he would go down to the local synagogue. The opportunity would be given to him. He would present the word of God there in that local synagogue for as long as they would have him. And we read in that verse that he entered the synagogue, and for three months they had him. And for three months he spoke boldly there, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, about the things of God. Now, unfortunately, as often happened, as Paul was beginning to have what we might call some success with the folks, the powers that be began to get uh, frustrated. And they eventually made the circumstances situation where Paul decided, you know what, if you guys don't want to hear, I'll just go somewhere where they do. And he would. And he would go and he would leave. And we saw this was fun. He rented a school building. They had off in the middle of the day for lunchtime. And he would rent their auditorium or whatever it was. And he would teach whoever would come. And lots of people began to come. Uh, and as we see in verse uh, 9 or so, verse 10, he did that for two years. He taught people. He had a little church, met every day from whatever, 11 to 1 in the middle of the day, and he would teach the people there. And, and last point, look down at verse 20 of the chapter, because there it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. He would teach those folks, and then they would go out, explain the things that they were learning to other people. We learned in one of the verses that the word of God began to spread all throughout Asia, not just in the city of Ephesus, but all throughout 
the region of Asia, as all of these people went forth and they did what it was that God was calling them to do. God was doing a work in people's lives. He was changing their lives. And unfortunately, once more, opposition arose against the Apostle Paul. Let's read a couple, uh, and we saw that, uh, and we spent some time with that. So that's where we, we left off. Um, let me read a couple of opening verses today. This is before we get to this opposition. Look at verse 21. It says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, not to take in the sights. He wanted to go minister in Rome. And having sent into, uh, sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia, specifically what city? Ephesus, uh, for uh, a little while there, for a while. So again, we are in the midst of Paul's third missionary journey. It's about three years now since he has left his home church in Antioch, Syria. He initially went and he traveled to a bunch of cities he had seen before, cities like Lystra, cities like Derby, cities like Iconium, you may remember that name. Uh, Antioch Poseida, he went there as well. And he went back to those places, checked in with the people, how you doing, answered their questions, taught them, and then he moved on to the next town. Eventually he gets to the city of Ephesus, where he starts teaching there in the synagogue for three months. They kick him out or drive him out, and he rents that school hall, and he teaches there for about two years longer. During this time, things are happening. We read them. We had the seven sons of Sceva, the book burning, all those things that we looked at last week. And it's during this second and a half year that Paul begins to say, you know what, I think it's time for me to move on again and to continue this work that I had been doing. It says there in that verse that we read, he wanted to get to Jerusalem. He wanted to get to Rome. He wanted to minister in those places as well. But before going to Jerusalem, before going to Rome, he wanted, as you can see here, he wanted to pass through Macedonia and Acacia. So verse 21 says he resolved in the spirit to pass through. God was working on him, teaching him, directing him. Paul, it's time to move on. There was that godly stirring. There was nothing wrong with Ephesus. It was just God was moving him to a new location. We have a map for that. Let's throw that up so you can see it. Macedonia, obviously in red. I don't know if you can see the green circle there as well, but that's where Acacia is. And so this is the area today of Greece and things like that. You can still see Ephesus is there in the black dot. So he crosses over that body of water. He goes into today what we call Europe, or he's going to go into today what we call Europe, in route to Jerusalem. Now, I don't have it up here on the map because it doesn't show up here on the map. Where's Jerusalem? What corner of the map? The bottom right corner. Paul, you're going the wrong way there. All right. Now, Rome is in that direction. But Paul's going to go down to Jerusalem. The idea of Rome, which would be like in the top left corner, is something way ahead that Paul's hoping to get to. But he wants to go to Macedonia first. He wants to go to Acacia first because he wants to interact with those people, meet with those people. I'm going to talk to you about it in a moment before heading down to Jerusalem. Now, Luke doesn't provide us with all the information as to why. But we do learn in other portions of our study of the New Testament why Paul wants to go to those regions. And the, the reason is, the answer is, Paul wants to take a collection in Macedonia, he wants to take a collection in Acacia. We learn in another place he took a collection in Galatia because of the difficult times that the church was having down in Jerusalem. 
And so he wants to go to those other locales, take a collection that he can bring to meet the needs of the people that are there in the church uh, in Jerusalem. We know historically there was a great famine that hit that area. That We're talking about the years about um, 55 AD. There was a period of about 8 to 10 years where there was basically a famine in Judea. Jerusalem is right there in Judea. And so the people were struggling um, down there. And Paul knows that, and he wants to meet that need. This is what Paul wrote to uh, the Romans in the book of what we call Romans. Verse 25, it says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. That's Romans chapter 15, verses 25 to 26. I'm going to Jerusalem, for Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul said this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also I do to you, on the first day of every week, each of you should put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I arrive, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it seems advisable, I'll go with them. In 2 Corinthians, he said this. He said, now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, the collection for the saints is the idea, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you, to the people of Macedonia, saying that Acacia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred most of them. And so we, we're not given that information in the book of Acts, but we are provided that information in other portions of the New Testament that historically there was this famine that had struck the land of Judea and Jerusalem in particular, and Paul takes it upon himself, prompted by the Holy Spirit, as it said in, in Acts 19, to take a collection to provide for the needs of those brothers and sisters in that faraway place. Paul, prompted by the Spirit, determines that Christians in this community should take a collection to meet the needs of Christians in this community over here. He's moved by the Spirit, and he extends now the opportunity to this group of Christians to provide for that group of Christians. This group of Christians that are 800 miles away from that group of Christians. This group of Christians who almost certainly have never met this group of Christians have never developed any sort of affinity for them. Well, I was there on a mission trip. I love those guys. That sort of stuff. They're just brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul decides, as the Holy Spirit leads, that he should go and take a collection among this group to provide for that group. Why? Well, I believe there's at least two reasons. Number one, because Paul wished in a very, very practical way to emphasize the unity of the church, capital C. A lot of times we get into very congregational thinking. And so what we do is for this congregation and how this congregation can grow. Paul had his eyes on the larger C church, the capital C church. And there were people in need, and Paul wants to make the church of Macedonia, Acacia, Galatia, wherever he was at that time, make them aware of the need 
and then encourage them to meet the need. His goal in raising support is to move them away from just mere congregational thinking. And that's hard because you think about your family. You think about yourself. You think about your church. You think about your community. And there's plenty that we could be doing here. I don't need to worry about those folks over there. But that's not the attitude that the Holy Spirit had. That's not the attitude that the Apostle Paul had. The Church of Jesus Christ is so much bigger than any one local congregation. And Paul, he wanted to emphasize that through a very practical act of giving to support their needs. Remember, Paul was their teacher. And there's a lot more to teaching than just sort of sitting in front of people, standing in front of people, opening their Bible and explaining things to them. There's modeling, there's demonstrating, and Paul's doing that here by taking this offering. The second thing that Paul, I think, is trying to do through this is to teach the spiritual discipline of practical Christian love. No doubt, the people in Macedonia, the people in Acacia, the people in Galatia, the people there in Asia, no doubt, when they heard of the difficulties that the people down in Jerusalem were going through, the church was going through down in Jerusalem, and man, seven years, and people are really struggling and starving uh, and all of this. No doubt the people were moved. Oh, man, that's terrible. That's too bad. I feel so bad for them. I couldn't imagine. I'm going to pray for them. Well, what Paul wanted them to do is to take that experience that they were feeling in their heart and put some hands to it. And so rather than just simply feeling sympathy for others, what Paul realized and wanted to see them do was to translate that sympathy into action on behalf of others. Because simply feeling bad for the people was not an option in Paul's estimation. And so if God burdened their heart, he burdened their heart because it was for them to do something, not just simply feel something. And so I want to encourage you, ask yourselves, what is it? that God has laid upon your heart? And then secondly, that second question, why is it that God has laid that upon your heart? You think of some ministry opportunities just here in our congregation. Maybe the Lord has laid upon your heart to sponsor one of the children connected with the Simpsons over in Kenya so that those kids for, what's it like, $60 a month or something, can go to high school and beyond. Perhaps God has laid it upon your heart to to contribute to that, to develop, help that kid develop the God-given gifts and abilities that he or she has. Perhaps it's to begin getting involved with the ministry of restoring hearts. Even if it's as simple as just making a meal that you can provide on a Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. Maybe it's to begin serving the young people of our church and in our community in a way that will be an outlet for the burden that the Lord has placed upon your heart for the young people of our community. I think about choice one and how so many of us, if not all of us here, so value life and we want to see life honored and dignified and maybe the Lord has put that on your heart and burdened your heart. Well, there's an outlet for that, an organization like choice one and so many other types of examples. Here's my point. When God lays a burden on your heart, it's not just for you to be weighed down by that burden. He lays a burden on your heart to move you to action. And so I encourage you in this. Take some time today, take some time this week to consider where has the Lord been guiding and directing you as it pertains to meeting the needs of other people.
Paul's trying to teach these believers these important lessons. And so with this collection in mind, notice what he does in verse 22. He sends ahead of him two of his helpers, assistants, fellow ministers, are the different words that are used, that they might gather the collection before he himself actually arrives in this city. Again, we see that in verse 22. The point is a little more clearly stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. There it says this, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Well, those brothers from 2 Corinthians 9.5, that's Timothy and Erastus, whose names we are given in our Acts 19 passage. Before moving on, notice this. I want to take notice. Paul, notice what he does. Notice what he doesn't do. Paul does not employ the often used method of manipulating people. Imagine if Paul came into this room, the Apostle Paul, and he came in and he was going to take a collection, and he spoke and he's looking right at you, and the buckets start coming around, and he's still looking right at you. Gee whiz, it's the Apostle Paul. You're probably going to begin to feel like, you know what, I better give. I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't pray about it, but that guy, he's, I, you know, that's the Apostle. But notice what Paul says in that 2 Corinthians passage, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. I'm not going to stand over you. I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to trick you into giving something or guilt you into giving something. It's between you and the Lord, Paul is saying. Again, imagine the type of pressure. And that's a philosophy of our ministry here at Calvary. We don't talk about it. We don't put emphasis on it. Now and again, we'll make you known of a need, and then we'll leave it at that. I, one of the things, some people like, had a hard time when online giving became a big thing, because like, no, giving, like, it should be an act of worship, so it should be tied in with the worship service, maybe, I don't know. And we have the boxes, and people use those. Um, what I like about it, a fringe benefit of like, the online giving, if that's how you choose to give, is it's, it's just between you and your wife or husband, as you sit at your desk at your home. It's not a show for anyone to see or anything like that. You just decide on your own what the Lord is leading you to do. And I appreciate that. And I, I think that follows a little bit of the heart of what Paul was getting to. I'm not going to try and guilt anybody into this. What Paul did was simply made the churches aware of what was going on in Jerusalem. He encouraged them. Look, if God is burdening your heart, it's for a reason. Not just so you have a heavy weight hanging around you. But he burdens us to move us. And then he left it between them and the Lord to do what they felt the Lord was leading them to do. He let the Lord do the convincing. And so, with Timothy and Erastus heading out to Macedonia and Acacia, Paul, he stays back a bit. He's going to wrap up some ministry things there in the city of Ephesus. We see that at the end of verse 22. And it's during that time that we have the occurrence of the events which we're going to read about now. Picking up in verse 23, it says, Now about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Remember, the way is the term that uh, unbelievers use to describe Christians. Um, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that, that kind of became connected with the Christians, and so people almost disparagingly began to call uh, people Christians, or they began to call people other oh, part of the way, or whatever. And the Christians were like, I kind of like it. Yeah, all right, we are. We're part of the way. Or whatever. And so uh, 
a little disturbance arose concerning the way, verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, he brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. Excuse me. Now, look at verse 20. This was where we began today. Look at verse 20. It says there, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We have an example of that prevailing in this uh, little passage we're looking at. We had a, an example of that prevailing last week. You remember how the people were being moved? I can't believe I was involved in these things. I don't want these things anymore. And they brought them and they destroyed all of those things. That was a prevailing of the word of God. The word of God was going forth. The people were hearing it. God was using it to change them. And that demonstrated itself in very practical ways. We have another example of it in our passage today. People's lives were being transformed by the word of God, and it was having a very practical impact on the way that they lived their lives. Here, it was having an impact on the economy. Remember, our title today is The Kind of Faith That Causes a Recession. It was having an impact on the economy of the city of Ephesus. And this fella, whose name is Demetrius, he points that out. Notice... In verse 25, the second half, he's speaking to his fellow idol makers, shrine makers, statue makers. He says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded people and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. The Christian faith in Ephesus and in Asia was making such strides in the community, that the sales of these little statues, these statues of Artemis, were plummeting. Artemis, your version, depending if you're maybe reading the King James or the New King James Version, it might use the word Diana. Uh, Artemis was uh, how the Greeks referred to this goddess. Diana was how the Romans referred to it. And, and we, we've seen examples of how, in, in different translations of the New Testament, uh, they, they either use the Greek pronunciation or the Roman one. Well, this is another one of those examples. And so we have this Artemis, the Greek goddess. She was the patron god of the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the center of the cult worship of Artemis, or again, Diana, depending on the version that you were reading. And there was a magnificent temple there in the city of Ephesus that was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so people all over the world, if they could, they would try to get to the city of Ephesus just so they could take in a view of this magnificent temple. Again, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artists have rendered what it might look like. We'll put a little picture here. That's the idea. So imagine, I mean, if you saw that today, you'd be like, wow, that's pretty cool. Let's go up there and take a look. Imagine if you saw that 2,000 years ago. All right, that was a, a rendering of the temple to 
uh, Artemis. Archaeologically, this is what it looks like today. So if you go to the city of Ephesus, uh, it's still there. Um, I know that we've had some folks here that have made their way to Ephesus. One day we're going to try to get there on one of our, uh, like our Bible tours that we do to Israel, and, and we're going to try and make our way to the, the, the steps of Paul. But Paul would have been here at this, uh, or outside of this particular temple. The structure was supported by 127 pillars. Each one of those pillars were 60 feet high, and they were adorned with many sculptures, great sculptures and uh, stone carvings. The main attraction of this temple uh, of Artemis was a chunk of black rock that had fallen from the sky. If you look down for just a second in verse 35 of this passage, You'll notice that down there in verse 35, it mentions this rock that fell from the sky. It was a black rock, probably a meteor of some sorts, that had come crashing down. They drew the conclusion that the gods kind of threw it down uh, to the earth. And since they were the community that uh, was dedicated to this Artemis, they fashioned that stone into a multi-breasted woman that was said to represent Artemis, who was the goddess of fertility. And so they carved it all up. It, it wasn't that good. Um, like, it didn't look like, it doesn't look like a woman to me. It's a woman. Okay, you know, if you say so. Um, and they put it there in the center of this temple. They built a temple around it, and the people would go there, and they would worship Artemis. Artemis. And people from all over Asia, all over the world, would worship at this shrine, again, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And then, as you can imagine, you've all been to Disney World. As you can imagine, you come outside of the temple, and there are these little shops on the side and little carts on the side. And, you know, hey, would you like to get a statue and bring it home with you? And the T-shirt, you've got to get the T-shirt. You know, all these things. And they, and they sold these products. There was probably a little more religion associated with it. You need to take this shrine home. You need to pray daily or whatever to this little statue. And that is the industry that Demetrius says Paul's ministry was so impacting. Again, verse 23, it tells us, no little disturbance concerning the way developed. As Paul was preaching, it was having an impact on the community. Now, here's the interesting thing. Paul never set out on a campaign to close down the temple of Artemis. We have no record of messages that Paul preached. As a matter of fact, later on, one of the officials of the town will say, these guys aren't blaspheming Artemis. They're not committing sacrilege against her. And so Paul never set out to preach against Artemis or this temple or anything like that. There was no protest outside by the Christians with signs. There's no calls for boycotts against the place or against the people selling the statues, no letter-writing campaigns, nothing pu published in the local papers, no social media blitzes. If you're a real Christian, you'll never go there. You know, none of this sort of stuff. What Paul did what he, was he taught the word, and God used the teaching of his word to change the people, which is the same thing we saw in our last study regarding the sons of Sceva. Remember that, Siva, that whole scenario there where the people said, look, I don't want anything to do with these things anymore. As they learned the word of God. Psalm 119, it says this. I quoted it in my prayer this morning. The entrance of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. 
And so as the people are drawing near to God through his word, God was increasingly revealing to them his will. And in obedience, those people were responding to his leading. As God reveals his will in your life, I encourage you, respond. Even if it seems like, eh, it's not that important. Well, if God's doing it, that work in your heart, respond and obey. And the Lord blesses that. He was blessing it in this community. James Montgomery Boyce, he was a 10th Presbyterian preacher down in Philadelphia. I enjoy reading a number of his uh, commentaries. Commenting on this, he said this, when Christians live as Christians, it will affect how they use their money. And there will almost certainly be an impact on the local economy. And he adds negatively for some. He goes on, he says this, let me suggest that if our Christianity is not affecting the economy of our world, then we do not have much Christianity. As God is working in our lives, it's going to change the type of people we are. Not because of the sermon series that we're, we're hearing, it's just as God is revealing and we're responding in obedience. And so as a result of the ministry that was happening in Ephesus, many Ephesians, they were turning to the Lord away from their idols. There was a spiritual awakening in the city, and it was so great that it began to change the economy of that city, actually leading to a business recession. There's a story that is told about the great Welsh revival of 1901. Anyone know where Welsh people come from? They come from Wales. Okay. I, I looked it up to make sure. Because I was like, I'm pretty sure it's Wales, but it could be Welshland or something, and, and I would get it wrong, and you'd laugh at me. So there was a great Welsh revival of 1901. The, the primary um, kind of minister that God was really using was a guy named Robert Murray McShane. You can read some of his uh, sermons that have been um, transcribed and the like. And the revival was so great in that country that every tavern... And every pub in the country of Wales was closed. But here's the interesting thing. As you go back and you read the transcripts of McShane, there was not a single sermon against alcohol that he preached. It was just simply God was changing people's hearts, and there was no longer an interest in alcohol in the hearts of the people of that nation. God did a changing work, and he's doing the same thing here. Paul's not preaching sermons against idols He's preaching sermons about Jesus Christ, and people are being drawn to Jesus Christ, and they don't want anything to do with idols. It's impacting the economy in such a way. And so this guy, Demetrius, he sees uh, his revenue steadily declining. He's got to do something. Look at verse 25. So he gathers together with the workmen in similar trades, and he says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. He gathers together as many tradesmen as he can, some directly making shrines, some making other things that, that he can. He gathers them together that they might figure out a way to stop the impact that the Apostle Paul is having. And he says to them in verse 25 or 26, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours, our paychecks, will come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing so that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. 
Now, first off, what a huge compliment Demetrius pays to Paul about the effectiveness of his ministry. That's the first thing that I take notice. But what I also take notice is he brings up all poor Artemis. She's this great goddess and all that. She's not going to be great anymore. His real reason is because his uh, wallet has been impacted. And he reveals that in the first statement. You know that from this business we have our wealth, he says there. But that is hardly the type of stuff great causes are built upon, the fact that this guy is losing a little bit of money at his job. And so he has to come back with a more noble cause, and that's when he adds, poor Artemis, she's at danger of our great goddess, may be counted as nothing, we, we have to stand up for her. He reveals his real motive, his money, but he couches it in this noble religious coloring, pretending great reverence for Artemis. Verse 28 goes on, now, when, when they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and the whole city began to rush together into the theater, and they dragged into the theater Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of Paul's, they sent to him, urging him not to venture into the theater. And some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they heard, or excuse me, when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Demetrius presents his little case. Somebody or somebody's among them. What? Someone's trying to depose Artemis from her magnificence, as Demetrius said in verse 27. We can't let such things be. Now, let me make this point. If somebody can depose your God or your goddess of his or her magnificence, that's likely an indicator you're following the wrong God. Right, that's just one thing that we'll throw out there. And these folks here in Ephesus, they were. They were following the wrong God, which is why Demetrius is able to raise them to such a stir and bring them to such a panic. I'm not worried that my God will be deposed in any way of his magnificence, regardless of what people might say or what people might do or what our culture might decide. I'm not worried about it. I don't need to get all stirred up about it. These guys did because they were following the wrong God. And she was very much at risk of being deposed of her magnificence. We have to do something. I can't do anything to contribute to the magnificence of our God. Amen? Are you with me? And neither can you. And so uh, they are panicked. They're stirred. We have to stop those people that are trying to do this. And so they begin to chant. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Look at verse 34. It says they did that for about two hours. Two hours, that same phrase, over and over and over again, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was in an uproar. Luke describes it in verse 25. He says, the city was filled with confusion. He talks about how the entire city rushed to kind of the center of town. They rushed to the theater. We would call it an amphitheater. And there they began to chant this phrase, 
for two hours at, at a time. Again, Ephesus is one of those cities archaeologically that is just a really remarkable place. I do hope someday to get there. And archaeologists have unearthed this amphitheater. We, we have some sites of it here. You don't have to go. Uh, now you can just look at it there. Uh, it's on like a hill of sorts. You can see how it kind of goes up. This particular amphitheater, if you've been on our trips to Israel or maybe you've been here uh, or somewhere like this, if you go on our trips to Israel, we go to these amphitheaters. Many of those amphitheaters are estimated to hold about nine or 10,000 people. This particular one was able to hold 25,000 people, all made of stone. It's, it's remarkable construction. They have like these, like these little channels with holes in them so that the noise can travel through like that piping of sorts. And so it's like they have speakers all throughout. It's really amazing um, the way those things are built. You could, and we did this, you could stand like on the stage and just talk like at a, at a particular language. The holes are there, the pipes, so to speak, are there, and it just resonates all throughout and people can hear what the actors or whomever would have been saying. And so the whole city comes into this place. There's some activity up front. The people are filling the seats, so to speak, and they're just chanting and chanting and chanting, great as Artemis of the Ephesians in this huge structure. Things were getting out of hand pretty quickly. It's not 25 people gathered. It's 25,000 people that are gathered potentially. And things were getting a little bit hairy, not just like the city's out of control, but it was getting a little bit hairy for Paul and for Paul's companions. We see that there in verse 29, that the mob seizes and drags two of Paul's friends, his companions, a guy by the name of Gaius and another fellow by the name of Aristarchus, and presumably to put him on trial or something like that. I love the Apostle Paul. Let me clarify. I would never do what he just suggests to do, but I love that he says, well, let me go down and talk to him. I'm not going down there and talk to him or whatever. But the Apostle Paul says, let me go down there and talk to him. Verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Paul had this heart. If I could just talk to him, I could convince them. Maybe I can convince half of that crowd, maybe a tenth of that crowd, 2,500 people. I could explain to them who Jesus is in such a way that God's Holy Spirit will bring them to their place of faith. That was Paul's heart even at putting himself at great risk. And so he said, let me go down there. Let me talk to them. Now, his friends, in verse 30, they replied. This is in the Greg Downs Greek. Are you nuts? You're not going down there. No, you're not going down there, Paul. You're crazy. You can't go there. Notice what it says in verse 31. It says, even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of Paul's, they sent word to him, Paul, don't even think about going down there. It's, it's a riot. And it's not going to turn out good for you down there. Now, I imagine you don't know what an Asiarch is. I don't know what an, I didn't know what an Asiarch is. An Asiarch was an official that was elected by the various Asian cities. So each Asian city, remember Ephesus was a city of Asia, Asia Minor. Each one of those cities would select or elect an official. And their job was to oversee and to implement the great yearly celebrations to the patron god of that particular city. What, what I kind of thought of in my mind was it's kind of like the grand marshal of like the Rose Bowl parade. It's this position of honor. There's probably a job to it to make sure that everybody, we're going to have the best festival this year that we've ever had, that kind of thing. That's the job of an Asiarch. 
those individuals were highly committed to honoring, in this case, Artemis or whomever the deity was that represented that particular community. All right, so they were like the champions of the pep rally for Artemis. But notice this, was Paul a champion for Artemis? Not at all. So notice this. It said that these Asiarchs were what of the Apostle Paul's? They were his friends. They thought very differently about religious things, religious matters. Paul was essentially putting them out of business from his teaching. He thought very, very differently. And yet he did it in such a way that they weren't unnecessarily his enemies. Paul didn't feel like he had to go to war against them, even as he was trying to convince others to not walk in the same path that they were walking to. And I think that's important. We can disagree with others, but in a way that doesn't make us disagreeable, so to speak. Notice again in verse 32, the city was in confusion. Notice how it says that some yelled one thing, some said the other. People looked at one another, why are we even here? I don't know, you know, but we're here. Nobody knew what was going on and why they had gathered. They had just simply followed the rest of the crowd that ran down the streets and went to the amphitheater and they started chanting. And the scene was growing quite chaotic, chaotic. And it's rightly referred a little bit later as a riot or rioting. If you have a heading in your Bible, it probably calls it the riot at Ephesus. Things were getting nuts. Verse 33, so some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. Why don't you go up front? They've been yelling for two hours. Why don't you go up front and explain our perspective? Alexander was a Jew. Basically, what it seems is he wanted to get up there and say, hey, look, I just want everyone to know, yes, Paul is of Jewish descent, but we're not with Paul. Paul's, you know, he's driving you guys out of business. We're not with them, all right, the Jews of this community, so don't kill me either. But notice what it says there in uh, the end of verse 33. He begins to motion with his hand to get everyone's attention because he wants to make a, a defense to the crowd but as it'll go on to say in the next verse, they're not in, they don't want to hear from him either. So the next verse says, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. He kind of reminds me of the new technique of teachers. Like when I was a kid, if we were loud in class, the teacher would yell at us. She had a big long ruler and she would get us to pay attention. You may remember those days, some of you. Now what do teachers do? A lot of teachers, they stand there and they'll say, I'll wait as long as it takes. And the dumb kids are like, oh, man. Like, I'm thinking, great, because <laughs> I had a lot more to say, you know, or something. And, and I picture Alexander standing up there. Look, I'll wait as long as it takes. And he's going to wait a long time. He, he waiting, he's waiting two hours. Nobody quiets down. Nobody's paying attention to him. Finally, someone said, just get off the stage. You know, you're embarrassing yourself. Or whatever. So, but he wants to stand up. He says, look, I'm not with the Apostle Paul. Now, here's an interesting thing. Christians believe that there is only one true God. And that consistent message that Paul was teaching impacted that community in a great way. Jews believe that there is one true God. And yet they had no impact on that community at all. So much so that Alexander says, like, hey, look, it's not us. We would never say such things and be offensive or whatever. That seems to me to be an indictment on the type of message or the way that those Jews were living in that community. So he gets up, 
Nobody listens. Finally, verse 35, the town clerk, kind of like the city mayor, he gets up. It says, now when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of, of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and also of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him, if they have a complaint against anyone, well, the courts are open and there are the proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Verse 39, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly and the people listened. So again, this clerk, kind of like the mayor of the town, he's going to make four quick points. First is in verse 35, which I'll summarize this way. Everyone here knows that Artemis is great and that we as the Ephesians, we're in charge of the temple. You know, we guard uh, her official temple place. That's the first point he makes. So can we please Stop yelling that Artemis is great. It's been for two hours now. That's the first thing he says. Second thing he does, he makes the case that the men that have been dragged in front of this 25,000 people that had gathered in this outdoor theater, again, their names are Gaius and Aristarchus, he makes the case that those guys weren't guilty of sacrilege or blasphemy. That's not the message of the Christians. They're not running around boycotting, trying to shut down this place. They're doing what they do. They're teaching from their Bible. They're explaining their things the way that they explain their things. They're not trying to shut down this place. So these two guys shouldn't even be here. Third, his third point is found in, found in verse 38. It's a procedural point. He says this, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, well, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. There's people that can serve as judges in those courts. Let the charges be brought against them in that manner, is what he says. There's a proper way. We're Romans. As Romans, there's a proper way to do these things, and this isn't it. And so bring them to court if there's truly a problem that is against them, not in front of, of an angry mob. Uh, who knows what they're going to do? And then finally, the fourth point that he makes, it's found in verse 40. I think this is his real motivation here. He says, we really are in danger of being charged by the empire in rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Now, Rome had pretty much taken over the known world, or certainly this portion of the known world at that time. And the Roman Empire, the emperor, gave quite a bit of freedom to every community to kind of run their own show and do their own things. And if it was a community that was pretty compliant, they allowed them pretty much to have their own leadership to make their own decisions. If they weren't yet compliant, they would send a military leader to make sure the people became compliant as quickly as they could. And so Rome gave the people as much autonomy as they could, but the one thing they did not tolerate was disruption and civil disorder, because that can get pretty ugly pretty quickly. And who knows where it might lead against those types of things. They really crack down harshly. And so what this town clerk could clearly see is that this is where this was going. 
it was going to the place of civil dis, uh, disorder uh, in that particular community. And he doesn't want the Roman Empire coming in, dealing with him. And one of the ways they oftentimes dealt with the guy in charge is they killed the guy in charge. And so he definitely says, we all need to settle down here and stop. And so verse 41, he, he gives his four reasons. The people are persuaded. Verse 41, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So notice this. God used this pagan city clerk to preserve the, immediate, to the Apostle Paul to kind of eradicate the immediate threat that was against Paul and against the other Christians. I want to make one last point here of our day. And it's based on the first thing that the town clerk made. Remember he said there in so many words, everybody knows that Artemis is great. Can we please stop chanting it? But his point was everybody knows these things that Artemis is who Artemis is. It can't be denied, he'll go on to say. And by that, what he means is it can't be brought to an end. Nobody can depose Artemis the Great. What are we doing here? Artemis is great. This is his thinking. She will always be great. There's nothing anyone can do that will stop her from being great. And yet, he was pretty sure about that, wasn't he? And yet, I suspect before this morning, most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, didn't even know what an Artemis was, right? Maybe you read the passage or whatever. I've read it before. I forgot about it or whatever, as I imagine you have as well. And an Artemis could have been a piece of furniture. I, I wouldn't even know what it was. And so here's this guy so certain that everybody knows and she will never be deposed, and yet most of us in our day and in this world perhaps don't even know what an Artemis was. He was so sure, so certain, so sincere, and yet so very wrong. And I imagine there's not a single person in the world that worships Artemis today. And yet there are millions and millions and perhaps even billions of people that worship Jesus Christ today. His argument that everyone worships Artemis, in fact, everyone did not worship Artemis. Paul didn't worship Artemis. Gaius didn't worship Artemis. Aristarchus didn't worship Artemis. The increasing number of people of Ephesus that were no longer buying the shrines, they were no longer worshiping Artemis. The real fact is that everyone did not worship Artemis. But even if they did, even if everyone in that town worshipped Artemis, that wouldn't make the worship of Artemis true. Because we don't take opinion polls to determine what truth is. Truth is truth. And so even if everybody else is doing it, that doesn't necessarily make it right or correct or true. And yet, you know the experience. You know the pressure of fitting in with what it seems that everybody else is doing or the larger crowd is doing. That pressure so often impacts us in such a negative way, especially when we're younger or perhaps if we're newer in the faith or something. You get older, you're like, I don't care what people think of me or whatever. But when you're younger, it's a real struggle. What are people going to think of me at this school? What are people going to think of me at this place of work that I'm starting in? And so often the pressure to fit in, it so often impacts us. It takes a lot of courage to stand firm when it seems that everybody else is going in a different direction and to be swayed and to begin to believe things 
that you don't naturally believe or haven't come to believe. And yet we're reminded who are those that really change the world. It's those that stand up to the world and say, no, I'm not going down that path. I'm going a different path and a different direction. And so I want to encourage you. That's hard to do. I, I understand that. I know that is hard to do. But may I encourage you in this. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And as you keep your eyes on Jesus, it's impossible to deny who Jesus is. It's when you take your eyes off Jesus and you see this crowd and you see that crowd and you hear this message and you hear that message that you begin to be drawn over into those camps. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Run your race with your eyes fixed on him with endurance, as it tells us in the book of Hebrews. Amen? Are you with me? That's what this small group of Ephesians did. It began with Paul and a few others. And today, nobody knows the name of Artemis. But many know the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Lord, I imagine that uh, all of us have, many of us here, we have unique ways in which that admonition there toward the end applies. And you know. And so, Lord, again, I pray, Lord, uh, that you would faithfully cause your word to shine light into the deepest areas of our lives, our hearts, our practices. Expose what needs to be exposed. Reveal what needs to be revealed. Draw us, Lord, in the place and in the direction you want to draw us. Give us the courage, Lord, to stand firm. We thank you for the fellow brothers and sisters who we can stand firm with. We pray for the filling afresh of your Holy Spirit for whatever might be in front of us. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on heaven. And Lord, as we do that, may ours be a life, a family, a church, a community that is being transformed because of the way you're changing us from the inside out. And may that be for your glory, we pray. Amen.